Amen. How are we doing? Oh, that doesn't sound great. Apparently everyone's an Oklahoma fan in the room. Sorry about that. <laughs> there it is. Hey, uh, guess who is bowl eligible, though? The, the Hoosiers in October. It's amazing. God is good. Um, you know, I'm a Kansas City Chiefs fan, and what that means is that I have embraced the theory that the best defense is a really great offense. Um, since we don't really have a defense, we only have an offense on that team. Uh, and that might continue to backfire for my football fandom, but I do believe there's actually a lot of truth in that when it comes to marriage. Uh, and so I really want to give you a, a real strong encouragement uh, to consider being a part of that marriage uh, conference here in a couple weeks on November 8th and 9th, uh, the Sojourn Marriage Conference. Uh, $50 is not a lot of money to invest in your marriage um, and, and even if things are great right now, um, the best defense may be a good offense, right? So uh, to invest in that time, to work on your marriage, um, to have a flourishing marriage, not only for the sake of you and your spouse, but also for the sake of the gospel, uh, for the sake of the testimony that the marriage gives to God's love for his church. Uh, that's what marriage is for that we might have a, a, a stronger proclamation of the hope of Christ and the way that we love one another as husbands and wives uh, in this body. So I encourage you to consider being a part of that. Uh, also, there's a members meeting this Wednesday night, six, uh, six, is it 6 p.m., 6.30? What does it say up there? Anybody remember? No one? Cool. It's one of those. Uh, I think it's 6.30. I'm pretty confident 6.30 is correct. So we'll say it's 6.30. Officially, it's 6.30 now, no matter what else you've heard. Um, that's, that's how we're going to do that. Uh, also, uh, there will uh, be a, a meal before that uh, that will be like a fundraiser for the Brazil mission team. Uh, Suggested donation of $5 a person or, or $20 a family if you're a family of four or more. Um, and there uh, will be some soups and, and, and such available. Uh, so if you're looking to make dinner work on the night of the members meeting and you're a covenant member coming to that meeting, we'd love to have you be a part of that and support uh, those folks here who are uh, going to be going to Brazil next spring break. Um, well, you know, I was thinking to myself as we were preparing for this Sunday, what is the best way that I could kind of take uh, this great mood that we're going to have with child and family dedications the Hoosiers are bowl eligible, right? How, how, what's the best way I could take that sort of mood and, and just wreck it? Um, and so I, I thought to myself, oh, I know, we'll talk about money. Uh, that'll be great. Uh, I'm kidding though, but that, that, is, that is often kind of our response though when it comes to the church talking about money and the reaction of many of us, including uh, pastors sometimes like, oh, oh no, we got to talk about that. Uh, but, but talking about issues related to money and generosity are, are, are vital, so, so important for us. Because as we talked about last week, if you were here with us last week, there are sins beneath the sins, like sins that the idols of the heart that kind of lay beneath the surface, that kind of move us to, to act and react in certain ways and behave in certain ways. And the way we spend our money is one of the easiest ways for our worship to get distorted and turn inward on self, ultimately. Following the, the trail of how we spend our money often exposes what it is that we truly worship where it is that we are seeking to find our security and our comfort and our acceptance and control and so on. Uh, 
Friedrich Nietzsche wrote that with the absence of God growing in Western culture, we would replace God with money. And functionally, many of us have done that in our lives. And we we do replace God with money all of the time. Uh, This doesn't come as a surprise to Jesus either. Uh, As we read through the Gospels, uh, Jesus is saying things like, you can't worship both God and money. You will either worship one or the other. You can't worship both. He's regularly warning people about greed. Tim Keller even points out in his book, Counterfeit Gods, that, that Jesus warns people far more often about greed than about sex. Yet almost no one thinks they are guilty of it. Therefore, we should all begin with a working hypothesis that this could easily be a problem for me. If greed hides itself so deeply, no one should be confident that it is not a problem for them. There is a real temptation for all of us when it comes to money. And you don't have to have a lot of it to wrestle with greed and to wrestle with a love of money. We can all be prone to struggle with this. The gospel doesn't ignore money, and so we shouldn't either. Rather, the gospel speaks to our idolatry and empowers real generosity. That's what we see in our passage today, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 through 15. I invite you to turn there in your Bibles with me and stand with me for the reading of God's Word. Hear the Word of the Lord. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave of... of, gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urge Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith and speech and knowledge, in all earnestness and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. And in this matter I give my judgment, this benefits you, who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. So now finish doing it as well, so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have." For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need, so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. As it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for today, and we thank you for your word, and we thank you that it it, it presses us in to the gospel and presses in on issues that sometimes might be uncomfortable for some of us, might be things we'd rather not talk about. But Lord, you 
you love us enough to press in on those very things, to expose what's there in our hearts, to show us the grace that you have for us, to welcome us into fellowship with you, and by your grace to empower us to join you in being generous, not just with money, but with our our very beings, our lives, our talents, our time, and our treasure. Lord, we pray that you would move us by your grace to be a generous people for your glory and for our good. Pray this all in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. You may have a seat. Just to give you a little context uh, in this passage, since we've been going through Galatians and, and not 2 Corinthians, uh, at this point in, the, the, in his second letter to the church of Corinth, Paul is seeking a collection of money and finances to give to the poor among the church in Jerusalem. And Paul was writing to the church in, in Corinth here to ask them to do their part in giving to this need. The church in Corinth was comparatively a pretty well-off congregation. They were also a congregation known to go off a little off the deep end with their freedom from time to time, right? Christians gone wild. That's the church in Corinth. Uh, Now, at some point in time, uh, when this collection began, uh, the church there in Corinth had had started setting aside funds. They started giving funds. And at some point, they stopped. And so now, at this point in the letter, Paul is calling them to do their part, to finish what they started, to be generous and, and give to this collection. And he first gives them uh, two examples of radical generosity, and then he calls them to step up and be generous themselves. First, he gives them the example of the churches of Macedonia. And speaking of the churches of Macedonia, Paul is specifically referring to uh, two churches or two locations of churches uh, at Thessalonica and Philippi. And in his letters to the Thessalonians and uh, to the Philippians, Paul expresses his thanks there for those churches and their sacrificial generosity, their partnership with him in the spread of the gospel uh, and and in his ministry. We see in in the letter to the Philippians that the church there was faithfully generous in supporting Paul for more than 10 years, supplying what he needed to help him continue on his missionary work. Were, Were these wealthy churches with loads and loads of cash at Philippi and Thessalonica? Well, look at verses one and two. He says there, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. Clearly, clearly not. These are not wealthy churches. This is not the rich suburbs here. Uh, where these churches are located. They gave not out of an abundance of financial wealth, but out of an abundance of joy, he says. In the midst of a severe test of affliction, in the midst of suffering, they gave generously. In their extreme poverty, and we think, man, they must have had a lot of college students in these these churches, right? You know, that's a joke. But even college students, really most every college student that I've met, will not really understand what extreme poverty really is. Now you think about this, only 6.7% of the world's population has a college degree of any kind. Those who have had some college or more are among the top 10% most educated people who have ever lived. Wealth 
versus poverty often comes down to choices. Do you have choices? You know, those experiencing extreme poverty don't decide between do I want Chipotle or Qdoba, right? That's not, that's not on the table. They're not deciding between should I make coffee at home or should I go to the coffee shop and, and get a latte, you know, or, you know, both. Something I like to call the jackpot um, when that happens in one day. Coffee at home in the morning and a latte in the afternoon. Winning. Um, right? Even those of you who are, uh, you know, undergrads or grad students, uh, you still have a lot of choices. You may not have the, the income of somebody who's got a stable full-time job in the working world, but students still have a lot of choices compared to so many people worldwide. So the vast majority of us shouldn't really even begin to think of ourselves as anything close to suffering from extreme poverty. Extreme poverty is what our friends experiencing homelessness face. Extreme poverty is not knowing when or where your next meal is coming from. It's not knowing where you're going to sleep tonight. Or will you get to sleep tonight? The people of the churches of Macedonia were experiencing extreme poverty. They had very few choices, and yet it says they had an abundance of joy. So joy is clearly not connected to wealth or stuff or circumstance. True joy, lasting joy that defies circumstances is a result of the grace of God. That's what Paul says there in verse 1. It's the grace of God that wells up into this abundance of joy that wells up into this wealth of generosity. And it says that in these churches that their abundance of joy, their extreme poverty overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. That makes absolutely no sense apart from the gospel. It makes no sense. Those things don't go together. Extreme poverty, suffering, abundance of joy, and a wealth of generosity do not go together apart from Christ. Look at verses 3 through 5. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then by the will of God to us. The church of Corinth had agreed to take part in this offering, this collection, at some point, but they quit doing their part. While these impoverished churches in Macedonia were literally begging for the opportunity to share in this offering, to share in meeting these needs, to take part. The wealth of generosity they possessed led them to want to give, to be excited and joyful to give. There's, there's no compulsion here upon the churches of Macedonia. They are delighted. They want to give. Paul's saying that they were so excited to give that they were giving beyond what seems reasonable to their means, but they wanted to do it. They weren't compelled to do it. They weren't duped into doing it. They longed to. They desired to. They were like that widow that Jesus speaks of at the end of Mark 12, where Jesus sits down in the gathering near where the people were putting in their offering, and he witnesses, he witnesses many rich people putting in large sums of money. And then this one poor widow comes forward to give her offering, giving two small copper coins which would make a penny. Mark 12, 43 and 44, 
And he, Jesus, called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. You see here, Jesus' desire is not for your wallet. It's for your heart that you would trust him completely. You trust him completely. He's not compelling anyone to give a certain amount, but to trust him and to give sacrificially, to give generously. Not out of the abundance, not out of the excess, the leftovers, but out of a wealth of generosity that's been shaped by his grace. That's what these, these Macedonian churches were doing. They longed to give. Their attitude would be like, hey, when are we taking the offering?" When are we going to do that? When are the baskets coming around? I, I'm, I'm ready to give. I'm, I can't wait to give. I'm excited to give. That's like their attitude, begging for the opportunity to share in the offering. I can't wait to bless the Lord with what he's blessed me with. Paul's hope is that the church in Corinth would be encouraged by this radical generosity displayed by these churches, that the Corinthians would experience grace like this and be moved to give generously and do their part as well. He gives them the example of these churches in Macedonia, and then he gives them the example of Christ. Verses 8 and 9. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that you, your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Now, there's a lot there to unpack, so let's, let's do that. Let's unpack it a bit. This, this call to give generously to the work of the gospel in the New Testament is never really given as a, a command, like a do this or else sort of command. It's not meant to be this have to sort of thing. It's meant to be a get to. You get to participate. The New Testament again and again teaches that giving should be viewed in that lens, something we get the blessing of being a part of. That's what Paul's saying here in verse 8. Don't read the word prove there like Paul is saying, hey, you better prove that you're legit by what you give. You better pony up so we know that you're legit. That's not what he's saying, but rather his point is your giving freely and generously, sacrificially, is a testimony to what the grace of God has done in your life. It, it testifies that you've been transformed by grace. It doesn't earn God's approval of you. It doesn't, you know, broadcast that. But it, rather, it's a, another sign, sort of like the fruit of the Spirit, that God has grabbed a hold of your life. You've been gripped by the gospel of grace, and it's changing you. Too many of us see giving as something I have to do. I have to do to get or keep or earn God's favor. Paul is saying, because you have experienced and tasted and been transformed by the grace of God, you will give generously. Now, do you have to? You will. You won't be able to help yourself. His point with the church in Corinth is, hey, I, I know you guys. I, I know that you've encountered the grace of Jesus. I know that you've been gripped with grace, but you've forgotten about it in this area of your life. You haven't let it permeate you completely in every spot of your heart. And here's one spot that it needs to permeate. It needs to penetrate. It needs to renew. Let me remind you of what Jesus has done for you. 
And so he does again, verse 9, I'm going to say it again. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. This, is, this verse is packed with theological depth. In saying that Jesus was rich, Paul is referring to the fact that Jesus Christ is the eternal Son of God, that he has always been. He's always existed. He has no beginning. He has no end. Jesus is God. He's the second person of the Godhead, the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And he's rich is referring to the fact that Jesus has always existed in this perfect, loving fellowship of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, perfectly loving and worshiping and and just affirming one another within that. That's all he's ever known. Jesus was rich, and yet for your sake, he became poor. That means so much as well. Jesus becoming poor for you refers to his incarnation, to, to Christmas. The Word became flesh and dwelled among us. He became poor by setting aside his crown and stepping out of heaven, stepping out of that perfect fellowship within the Godhead to give up a place of glory to come and be born in poverty in a dirty, smelly, nasty barn. A helpless baby. Jesus, for your sake, became poor. In Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 and 7, Paul says it like this. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, Jesus emptied himself, But not just in his coming, but in his very life. Day by day, he emptied himself to come and live the life that you and I never could. A perfect, sinless life. A selfless life. A servant-hearted life. Obedient in all the ways that you and I disobey. He kept the law perfectly for us. Jesus emptied himself, not just in his life, but most notably in his death. That's what Paul continues to say in Philippians 2.8. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus, for your sake, for my sake, became poor. He emptied himself in dying the death that you and I deserve for our sins. He took our sin And he suffered as our sin in our place. And he died to defeat Satan, sin, and death once and for all. He suffered on your behalf, taking on your poverty. That he might credit your account with his perfect righteousness and unending grace upon grace. Jesus was buried on the third day. He rose victorious over the grave. That every knee should bow, every tongue confess that he is Lord, he is King. Though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. He lived and died and rose again, that through repentance and faith in Christ, by acknowledging and turning from your sin, seeking to live for yourself, and turning and trusting in Christ, that he is the hope that you need. He is your everything. He is where your glory is found. His glory. He's everything. You might in him, by trusting in him, find forgiveness of sins past, present, and future. 
that you might be adopted into the family of God as his children, sons, and daughters, that you might receive a righteousness, a right standing with God that is not your own but has been secured by Christ alone, where you have unending acceptance and approval that can never be taken from you, where there is lasting comfort and there are pleasures forevermore. Jesus became poor that he might make you rich in him. Not materially rich, but rich in hope, rich in glory, rich in finding grace upon grace, rich in having God. Jesus isn't just an example of generosity that Paul is giving to motivate you. He is the source of your generosity. It is only in the gospel and thinking upon the life, death, and resurrection of Christ that, that accomplish, and all that accomplishes for us that our hearts are transformed to become truly generous. Apart from Jesus, all of our efforts at being generous are, are really all about self. They're all about, hey, look at me. Aren't I a good person? Look what I've done for someone else. Aren't I so generous? Aren't I such a blessing to others? All of our efforts apart from the gospel, even to be generous in giving, are really self-focused, self-worship. Only the selflessness of Christ to redeem us moves us to begin growing in true selflessness and true generosity. That's what makes our generosity even possible is His grace and His generosity towards us. Now, I don't want you to hear me up here saying and, and that I'm trying or feel like I'm trying to manipulate you to get into your wallet. Right? Jesus isn't after your wallet. He's after your heart. But no doubt, your wallet, my wallet says a whole lot about our hearts. It tells a story about what it is that we really do worship. It displays what's coming out of our hearts. But the motive isn't give generously to get something from God. True generosity is always a worshipful, joyful response because you already have Christ. And in Christ, you already have everything that you truly need. A heart that has been gripped by the grace of God cannot help but loosen its grip on its time, on its talents, on its treasure. If we're dwelling in the gospel daily, abiding in Christ, remembering all he's done, we cannot help but grow in generosity that reflects his generosity towards us. That's Paul's point here with the, with the, the Corinthians. Let the gospel move you to do your part. Do your part. Look at 10 through 15. He says, and, then, and in this matter, I give my judgment. This benefits you. This benefits you who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. So now finish doing it as well, so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need, so that their abundance may supply your need. And that there may be fairness. As it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gather, gathered little had no lack. He encourages them in light of the gospel to finish what they started. 
the matter of fairness and supplying one another's need, verses 13 and 14, isn't so much let's evenly distribute among us so that everyone has the same amount. Uh, that's not what that's talking about. That's, that's called communism. Um, that's not what the gospel's pointing to. Rather, Paul is saying each one should do their part in proportion to what is generous for you and in proportion to your faith and in proportion to your understanding of the gospel. It's interesting that the New Testament doesn't talk much about tithing. In the Old Testament, tithing is essentially a law. There's no punishment associated necessarily for not tithing, but it's an expectation of obedience that you will, you will tithe. But in the New Testament, tithing is rarely mentioned. And when it is mentioned, it's usually in a negative connotation, like Jesus rebuking the Pharisees for how ridiculous they are that they tithe out of their spice racks. Right? You're separating, you know, a tenth of your dill, a tenth of the, the you know, all, all the little spices there to bring as an offering to God. And he's saying, you're ridiculous in your legalism. It's not about a flat legalistic percentage because there's a reality for some of us in this room that 10% might be suicide. And yet for others, 10% would hardly be sacrificial or generous. In the New Testament, it's about grace-based giving. What is generous, sacrificial for you? Where you're at. This also means that there is grace to grow in giving generously. That you start somewhere. You repent of disobedience and you start somewhere. And then you let the gospel grow you. To grow you increasingly and understanding God's generosity towards you and letting that propel you to growing generosity towards Him and towards others. You know, there's a reality for, for Crystal and I. Um, you know, before planting this church, we served 14 years in parachurch college ministry. And I would say for much of those 14 years in parachurch college ministry, we were terrible church members. Terrible. Like, we were members of a church. We attended faithfully on Sundays. Uh, but we served very little. We gave sparingly, right? We had this warped view of like, well, you know, we're investing all of our time in this ministry that we're serving through the week. And, you know, we're pouring a lot of our money into, you know, that ministry and the ways that we open our home and do some of these things. And we made these excuses for our disobedience. And so... Uh, you know, several years before planting Redeemer, God began kind of grabbing a hold of our hearts and reorienting ourselves, kind of a gospel awakening that came with it, a greater appreciation for the local church and the centrality of the local church and the mission of God and a real conviction about how we were not doing our part in being a part of God's church, His local church, the local expression of that church. And so we repented. And we began giving and serving, and, and God has grown that. And, and we make it a practice, not that we've arrived in this, we've got a lot, of, a lot of room to grow. But every year we try to challenge ourselves, how can we grow in this? In light of God's grace towards us, how can we be more generous this year than we were last year? Starting somewhere, letting the gospel continue to grow you, that's the grace of God. In verse 15, Paul quotes Exodus 16, 18, referring to God's provision of the, the manna in the wilderness for his people when they're in the, the wilderness there. And his point is that wherever God's people, however much uh, or little they have, wherever they're at, 
wherever they are prepared to use their gifts, to use their treasure, their money, and give them freely, use their gifts and money, he'll give them freely and generously, there will be equality. Everyone's need will be met. There will be no injustice, is what that's saying. Now, it doesn't mean everyone will have the same amount. Some will have more, some will have less. But everyone will have enough. Everyone's needs will be met. God is faithful to provide. Now, this is not the health wealth gospel either, and we should make a clear distinction. God does not guarantee material blessing based upon your giving to Him. And anyone who tells you that is lying to you, right? If you give this money, then God will bless you with more money, and He will make you wealthy, and He will make you healthy. That is a lie from Satan himself. That is not the gospel. That is a false gospel. He does not promise that your life will be easy, that if you you give faithfully, he'll make your life easy. There won't be suffering. You'll have wealth. You'll have abundance of stuff. That's not the gospel. Actually, the promise of the gospel is you will suffer. You will be persecuted, but you will have Christ and he is enough. He will sustain you through whatever comes your way. He will be with you. He has given you everything. He has given everything of himself for you. That in him you would find your everything. And that is all you need. In the age to come, he will continue to give you everything. Share in the fullness of his inheritance. That's the promise. You get every spiritual blessing in Christ. That's the promise. It's not money and stuff and and you won't get sick. It's you get Christ. And in him you get everything that you need. The message of the text is clear that every church, every Christian has a, a part to play in this. The generosity of Christ should move every believer to be generous uh, with, their, with their money, with their, with their time, with their abilities and gifts that they've been given. And if any Christian is not growing in generosity in all these ways, then it's clear that we don't really get the gospel that it hasn't truly gripped our heart, that it still needs to renew aspects of our being. doesn't mean you're not a believer, but it may mean that you're not dwelling in the good of the gospel daily. Because if, you're not tr- if you are truly abiding in Christ, you're thinking on his generosity toward you, you won't be able to help but start to loosen your grip on what you think is yours and see it as his. You won't be able to keep yourself from giving more freely of your, yourself, your time, your talent, your treasure. You can't look at the cross without beginning to open your hands. You can't. So may we look at our Lord Jesus Christ, who though he was rich, yet for our sake he became poor, so that in him, by his poverty, we might become rich. Not materially rich, but something much greater than that. Rich in every spiritual blessing in Christ. May the gospel empower us to be generous as a body because together, when we're looking at the gospel together and it's renewing our hearts together and opening our hands together, we can accomplish a lot more together for the sake of his kingdom than we can on our own. Now, we're a pretty young church 
in a uh, young city for the most part, right? With, with a lot of college students as a part of this congregation, a lot of transients uh, to this city and to our body. And sometimes, you know, I think students in particular can be tempted to think that they can't give enough to make a difference. So why bother? But if 150 college students are giving 10 to $20 a month faithfully, that starts adding up, right? $1,500 to $3,000 a month. And that makes a real difference in a church like ours. It really does. And there are students here who I, I know in this body who give way beyond that uh, in their faithful generosity. So don't begin, you know, don't put off beginning to give until you graduate, until you get a job with this mindset that you think, hey, once I actually land that steady career, that steady income, then I'll start to give because I'll have more and it'll be easier. That's a lie. It doesn't get easier when you have more. Because there's a reality that there's always more you can spend your money on than there is money to spend, no matter how much you have. Right? Amazon dude has to make some choices. Now, he gets to make a lot more choices than any of us in this room, but there's still, like, he, there's more than he, to spend your money on than there is money to spend for anyone. It's actually easier to start with little and be faithful in that and then continue to grow in being faithful as, as God gives you more, assuming he does. For those of us who finished our education or out in the working world, we need to do our part as well. We need to continue to seek uh, out what Christ would have us to give of the first fruits, not the leftovers. That's the principles of giving. And as you go into chapter 9 in 2 Corinthians, out of the first fruits, given first to the local church and then to the other needs that you see beyond that, regularly, sacrificially, generously, cheerfully, not under compulsion but joyfully wanting to give? What does the Lord put on our hearts? What does he put on your heart? Where is he calling you to start in that if you haven't started yet? Where is he calling you to grow in that if you have? Now, if today's your first Sunday with us and you're like, oh, great, here we are, uh, you know, or you're here and you're not a Christian, I, I want you to hear me very specifically say, we are not expecting you to give a thing. Not a thing. Rather, I would say if you're not a believer in Christ, I pray that the message you hear is that though he was rich, for your sake Christ became poor, that by his poverty he might make you rich, that you would hear the good news of the gospel, that Jesus lived and died and was raised to pay for your sins and reconcile you to God, and that the only thing you would give is give your life to Christ to receive him by faith today. That's the only thing we would ask of you. We would encourage you in. And if you're a guest, uh, you know, I pray that whatever church you eventually connect with, you would go as deep as you can with that church and you'd be faithful in being generous to that church. If that's here, we welcome that, but we're not expecting that to happen today if it's your first time. But if you are a member or a regular of this body, then please hear me say to you, we need you to do your part. You have a part and we need you to do it. By God's grace, this church has grown over the past seven years. Uh, and as we grow, our needs grow with us. There are opportunities for ministry. We, we need to care for more people. There are increasing opportunities within our city to, to meet needs, things like the care clinic uh, and, and whatnot, to invest in planting churches, 
locally and globally. There, increasingly, as we continue to go forward, there are going to be opportunities and needs to multiply congregations locally and globally. There is real need for us here. And the fact that we exist in such a transient community uh, where people are regularly moving in and out, that only adds to the fact that there, there are needs. And, and largely, as a church, we're, we're underfunded compared to normal statistics of whatever that means of churches our size in other locations. Back in May of this year, our general fund giving had, had began, began dipping to a trajectory where at the end of this year, we were looking like we we're going to be about $70,000 uh, below uh, budget. Uh, we made some cuts to our spending, largely affecting our staff uh, and some kind of auxiliary benefits and, you know, ministries, resources, that sort of stuff to kind of try to trim that down, to cut as much funding internally without affecting ministry that we're doing as a church. Uh, and people have responded in some ways, and so that trajectory has gotten smaller. Uh, last month was a really good month uh, with some special kind of one-time gifts that came in, and we largely has erased that deficit down to just under $3,000. We've we spent more three, about $3,000 more than we brought in to this point through the end of September uh, of this year, and that's great. But we'd also like to resume some of those things that we've cut. We also realize that there's always increased opportunity to do more ministry, uh, and, and rather than continuing to cut, uh, we would like to be able to resume and expand uh, and in, engage with the opportunities for ministry as they come our way. We've continued working on various projects here in this building. Uh, we were seeking to raise about an extra $10,000 to complete kind of the first phase of getting offices. We just did redo the roof on the classroom building, and that has been, been taken care of. Uh, but we've, we've only had about 3000 of that 10000 to finish those projects coming in. So we still have about 7000 to go on that, on this first phase. There are needs. Uh, we would love to expand a parking lot at some point. We would love to actually connect these buildings together at some point down the road. But clearly, those are not going to be options on the table for us as we are currently going financially as a body. Uh, we faithfully as a church give over 10% to church planning around the globe. Of every dollar that comes in here, 10% goes back out to support church plants in Indiana, Michigan, Ohio, Missouri, Brazil, the country, not Brazil, Indiana, uh, France, Japan, as well as giving to some organizations that are, are forwarding church planning and gospel efforts around the globe, all over the place. Your giving not only makes a difference here in this body, but it makes a significant difference in those churches and the support that we're able to give them and the opportunities we have to get behind what God is doing around the world. So along with finishing up the Opportunity Fund projects uh, between now and the end of 2019, we're also seeking to raise a special year-end gift of about $20,000 of above and beyond giving to hopefully build a little bit more of a cushion for our general fund heading into 2020, uh, enabling us to hopefully resume and continue and expand to do the ministry we feel called to do here in Bloomington and beyond. Now, I share that to give you some very practical application points of how you might respond to Christ's generosity uh, toward um, gospel-empowered generosity and giving financially to this church and through this church to support the work of the gospel around the world. There are, 
our needs and opportunities. Those are, those are some needs and opportunities. But I want you to hear me say that in this, Jesus is not after your wallet. He's after your heart. He is to be Lord over everything in your life, your body, your time, your talent, your treasure, all of it. I pray that the wonderful, beautiful, incredible generosity of Christ displayed in his life, death, and resurrection would set us free from the worship of materialism and money. We will never be satisfied. There will never be enough if we, if we chase down that, that trail. That it might transform us from being consumers to being givers. Not just financially, but of our lives, of our homes, of our, our, our time. That it might show you that Christ alone is where you find all you've been looking for in money and possessions. That the gospel might empower you to open your hands and give freely out of abundant joy welling up to a wealth of generosity. That's my prayer for us. Well, may the Lord's Supper today give us an opportunity to slow down and to reflect on the grace of our Lord Jesus that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that by his poverty you might become rich in him. Believers, you're invited to come and share in this meal, remembering and sharing in Christ's body that was broken and his blood that was shed for your sins as you break off a piece of the bread and dip in the cup. Uh, there's juice and wine to take as your conscience leads you. The wine is in the glasses marked with twine. If you're not a believer in Christ, this is an opportunity for you to look upon the cross, to see how Jesus has paid it all for you. And not give your money, but give your life to him to receive him by faith. There'll be pastors and, and prayer responders here in the back. We love to visit with you. Love to pray with you about anything that's going on in your life. Let us continue to worship and let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for this time uh, to be together. To be reminded of all you have done. To rescue us from sin and death. To be reminded, Lord Jesus, of all that you gave up of all you endured for our sake, that you might make us rich in you, rich in every spiritual blessing, rich in being the children of God, rich in having an ending acceptance and approval of resting in peace, knowing that God is in control and sovereign, that he is our stronghold, our security, our refuge. Lord, you renew our hearts to know, to realize, to recognize all that we have in you is all we truly need. And would you free us from the idols of self, the idols of comfort and control and security that lead us to hoard and not give, that lead us to chase after more instead of resting and enjoying what we have in you. Lord, would you renew our hearts? Would you well up within us an abundance of joy? That no matter what season we're in, however much or however little we have, Lord, there would be a wealth of generosity that points to your glory and your goodness and your grace for the good of others. I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.